All right. Because I can, calling this meeting to order with the gavel. Uh, it is our first meeting of the year for the Marin County Transit District. It is Monday, January 8th. And at first, if we, is there anyone that's going to be participating from the board remotely, Kate? There were no requests for remote participation by any directors. Thank you. Which means we can go on to roll call. Yes, I will now call roll. President Rice? Here. Vice President Colbert? Here. Second Vice President Lucan? Here. Director Moulton Peters, Director Rodoni, Director Sackett, here, Director Bushy, Director Casisa, here. Thank you. We have a quorum. All right. So our next item is organization of the district for 2024. We need to elect a president, vice president, and second vice president. Would anyone like to Madam make a motion? Madam President, I would like to nominate Brian Colbert as president, Eric Lucan as vice president, and Mary Sackett as second vice president. Second. Mm -hmm. Sorry, my mic. I'll second that. All right, so we have a motion. Moulton Peters, second. Rodoni. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay, it's unanimous. All right, so I am going to hand you the gavel, President Colbert. Yeah, but before you do, oh. Katie, thank you very much for leading us for the last year. It was a full year and you got us through it very well. Thank you. It was a pleasure and an honor. I'm very happy to pass the gavel on. <laughs> right on. <laughs> well, anyway, I'll just second everything Director Molden Peter said. Thanks so much, Katie. So moving on along to item number three, Open time for public expression. Kate, do we have anyone in the chambers? Um, I will first read the instructions on how the public can participate in the meeting. At today's meeting, in-person comments will be heard before virtual comments. If you are joining us on Zoom and you would like to comment, please use the raise hand icon located on your screen. If you're participating by phone call, please press star nine to raise your hand. When it is your turn to speak, your name will be called and you'll be prompted to unmute your device. You will then have two minutes to speak. This concludes the instructions. And I will hand the meeting back to President Colbert. Thank you, Kate. Any public comment in the room? I see no one in the chambers for public comment. I will check online. I'll give everyone a moment to raise their hand. There are no raised hands on Zoom. Thank you. Thank you. Item number four, Director, uh, Board of Directors Matters. Would any of my directors have anything to share with us today? All right, seeing none, we'll move on to item five, the general manager's report. Good morning and happy new year. Um, thank you, President Colbert and members of the board. And thank you, uh, Director Rice, for serving as our president for the last year. And welcome to the new officers. Uh, for my report, Kate, if you want to move to the next slide, I just want to start with um, <clears throat> a tour that we took of the Gillig Manufacturing Plant in Livermore. We, uh, a number of us from our staff, went out there on December 20th and toured the plant, saw two of our seven buses. We have seven hybrid buses that are on the production line currently. Um, there are, uh, our, our buses are expected to be delivered in late January, early February. The project cost is about $6.4 million. It's a, it's a really exciting facility to look at. It's still relatively new. Uh, we have only a handful of public transit uh, bus manufacturers in, in the country, and so we're very lucky to have uh, Gillig near us 
so that we can go uh, tour with them. Uh, we did uh, the the picture you here see here is uh, signatures that we made on the chassis of the bus, which um, one of our staff members noted will probably never ever be seen again. But it was fun to do, and um, we did have one again. Luckily for us, that they are so local that we were able to also have a meeting after our tour to discuss some of the issues uh, with our Gillig technicians about some of the electric buses that we're operating. So um, it was definitely a, a day well spent. Next slide. Uh, on December 12th, my MTC led a workshop with transit agencies and county transportation authorities, city public works directors and uh, staff and uh, Caltrans, other stakeholder groups to discuss transit priority which is um, of course a treatment that, that we are very anxious to see throughout the region to help speed up our buses through traffic and various uh, arterials as well as highways. And through the series of group exercises, the uh, benefits and challenges and needs of implementing the transit priority treatments were discussed. We heard lessons from four different agencies, lessons learned from four agencies who've implemented some form of, of transit priority in their local jurisdictions. And there was a good amount of sharing of information. Um, MTC will be using these, the outcome of this workshop uh, for developing a regional transit priority over the, the next few months. And on the slide here, we just listed some of the things that uh, were the desired outcomes from, from the workshop. Uh, following the workshop, some of the attendees, and, and I was included in that group, toured the uh, AC Transit's Tempo Line, which is in, in Oakland. It's a nine-mile uh, rapid bus rapid transit line that they've seen have really good success there. It's a pretty impressive facility. And um, they've seen ridership grow significantly with that, that line. They've really speed up. Um, it, it, it's a fully dedicated bus rapid transit line. So it really does speed up their buses. And then just in conclusion on this slide, um, we will be coming back to this board with a pr presentation on transit priority treatments and elements and you know what what it really means because there are big range of different things that that we look at in the way of transit priority. Next slide please. And then um, last month I reported to you on the um, that we had begun a new coordination effort with Marin and Sonoma transit agencies and uh, MTC and our county transportation authorities and the focus of the effort is on developing a plan to optimize transit service on the 101 corridor and facilitating the best trip for transit riders in that corridor. And this coordination work began in earnest in December with the planners drafting a scope of work and schedule for uh, a consultant project. And MTC has agreed to allow us to use their bench of consultants and they will help provide funding for the project. And the participating agencies have also agreed to help fund part of, of the study. And on the fifth, we held our third meeting. So this is a meeting of the general managers and executive directors. And we agreed to a set of principles for coordinating our services. Um, the principles address how we'll share, ride share ride, ridership data um, and service change information. And they call for us to coordinate schedules to support our riders' ability to seamlessly transfer between our services. And we also agreed to coordinate fares and transfer policies through the Clipper 2.0 program and coordinate our marketing and outreach efforts. So um, all the GMs and executive directors agreed to actively participate in monthly meetings of this group throughout 2024. And all of our participating agencies will be reporting out to their boards in a manner similar to this. So our messaging will be consistent about the coordinated planning effort. And 
next slide then, Kate. So yeah, I'm gonna turn now to our <clears throat> monthly ridership report. And um, in your packet, you may note that I had the wrong month on there. It's corrected here on this slide. It's October of 2023. And what you can see is that after leveling off for about um, six months, March through August of 23, uh, in September and October, we saw our fixed route ridership grow to 92 and 96% of pre-COVID levels. And you can see, um, we, we believe that our riders have uh, been able to make the change that we put in place or seen the, the service change that we put in place in um, June. They've been able to uh, work with that. And in fact, our, our optimistic that trend will we are, we are optimistic that that trend will continue. So um, they basically have made that switch that we were looking for. Next slide. And then on demand response ridership, um, we have seen a declining trend and, and we are still um, looking toward the changes that we made this summer with the Marine Access Services uh, to see if those will help us with the, the ridership here. And we have already mentioned to you that we are doing a, a deeper dive on analyzing the impacts of um, COVID and, and why our ridership has not returned on our demand response services. But you can see here that we were down to about 5,300 trips in the uh, month of October. So that uh, that concludes my report. Be happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Nancy. Any questions, Commissioner Director Sack? Yeah, Nancy, I'm interested in this AC tempo. You said it was a nine-mile line. Is that a dedicated lane? Is yes, it, it's a dedicated bus lane on surface streets uh, running out through uh, from downtown Oakland, basically. Uh, we we took it through about Fruitvale. I'm not sure how much further it goes, but yeah, it's a dedicated lane and it has um, boarding islands that are for uh, specifically for that that route. Um, it has uh, no the the fares are paid on the boarding island. You know, there's a there it makes it really easy for people to get on and off. They're using articulated buses on that service that are dedicated for the service. Um, signal pre preemptions, um, trying to think about what other treatments they have. Yeah, it's, it's very impressive. But it's really just a, it's one line. It's not, those buses aren't going into other routes and so forth. It's kind of an out and back. Yes. Okay. It's, it's yeah, yeah. Nine, a little more than nine miles and then out and back. Yep. In a fully dedicated lane. Uh, Director Malton Peters. Yeah, just a couple of comments, Nancy. I, I'm really glad to hear about the transit priority workshop. And I think when you come back with uh, the treatments for us, uh, uh, I also would suggest that we go to TAM with the same information, because I know that uh, the unfamiliarity with the treatments, both on the part of board members, but also some city staff, has has been a barrier for us to put these treatments in place. So I, I think some education awareness for everyone, but I'm really glad that the the uh, MTC is coordinating it for the whole Bay Area because I think there's strength in those kinds of standards. And then I, I wanted to um, compliment you and, and acknowledge um, the effort on the Marin-Sonoma transit coordination. It's great to see this kind of on the ground work happening. The North Bay is the first one to take it on as a way to demonstrate that collaboration and cooperation is possible. I want to acknowledge Dennis Mulligan, our general manager from Golden Gate Transit is here. But I think the North Bay is very well positioned to kind of lead a, a pilot on how this can work 
And it's just great to hear that you're, you've are you already started and you're at meeting number three or something like that. So anyway, uh, keep going, guys. So thank you. Any other director questions or comments? Kate, any public comment in in-house or online? I'll give everyone a moment to raise their hands on Zoom. There are no raised hands on Zoom. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks again for the report, Nancy. Item six is the consent agenda. We'll take public comment on the consent agenda before anything, Kate. I'll give everyone one moment to raise their hands on Zoom. There are no raised hands on Zoom. Thank you. And nothing in the chambers. Any comments from my fellow directors? Seeing none, would anyone care to offer a motion? I'll move consent. First by Director Rice, second by second. Director Bushy, all in favor? Aye. Any opposed? None. We'll move on to item number seven. This is an update on the San Rafael Transit Center replacement project. And I just want to be clear, this is a discussion item only, okay. right? That's correct. Thank you. So um, we've been working for several years with Golden Gate and other stakeholders on or the San Rafael Transit Center replacement project. And today, Robert Betts, our Director of Operations and Service Development will kick off a presentation that will be followed then by Mara Baum, who's with the consulting team leading the community design uh, advisory group work that has been going on for a few months. And then um, it's already been acknowledged, but Dennis Mulligan, the general manager from Golden Gate Transit is also in the audience. If um, there are any questions, I'm sure Dennis could also help answer those as well as uh, some of the staff from Golden Gate. So Robert, if you'd like to kick that off. Sure, thanks, Nancy. Good morning, President Colbert, members of the board, Robert Betts, Director of Operations and Service Development. Item number seven is an update on the San Rafael Transit Center relocation project. Uh, it's been almost a year since we've given your board an update. I think the last time um, we briefed you all on this project was back in February. And at that time, the Bridge District had just adopted uh, their final EIR and the preferred uh, alternative for the relocation site. They were just kicking off the conceptual engineering phase as well as some of the more detailed design work. So at today's meeting, we're going to give you an update uh, on the design efforts. Um, Golden Gate's consultant team is here to, to brief you all on those activities. And we've also had a chance most recently to meet with uh, the district to talk through some of the operational uh, questions and concerns that, that we have uh, about the facility. So I'm going to give you kind of a, a snapshot of, of some of the discussion that, that we're having right now as we evaluate that new facility. Next slide. The uh, presentation is, is, like I mentioned, I'll start off by giving you kind of an overview of the project. I know many of you are very familiar with this project, but I'll just uh, talk through a little bit of the history, talk through our uh, initial operation uh, assessment of the um, preferred design, and then I'm going to turn it over to uh, the Bridge District and their consultant team to give you an update on some of the engagement strategies, the design work, and next steps for the project. Next slide. So the, the project itself is 
nearly 15 years old. I think you could even go back uh, almost 20 years on this project to some of the initial downtown station area planning efforts. Uh, the city of San Rafael led a lot of those early efforts and in, in looking at and identifying the transit center and uh, potential relocation sites. In 2018, the bridge district took over the lead on the project through the environmental phases, which uh, concluded just last year. Uh, and as I mentioned, that project is now moving into the conceptual engineering and design phases. Next slide. Why is the project needed? There's there's a lot of reasons why. I think as a quick summary, the, the facility is aging. It's it's over 30 years old at this point. Uh, in a lot of ways, we've, we've outgrown the facility. Our services have expanded. The way we provide service and use that facility has changed over the years. Uh, and most notably with the start of uh, smart rail service and the extension into Larkspur, that facility was uh, basically split in half by the railroad tracks, which not only had impacts on our transit operations and the flexibility of the facility, but also created internal pedestrian circulation challenges. So those are, those are some of the driving um, reasons behind the relocation study um, and, and the project itself. Next slide. I should also mention that um, you know COVID has impacted transit, transit services, transit ridership, but we very much still need this project in this facility. This slide here shows a comparison of the number of weekday bus trips, and this was a snapshot from June of 2023, that used the facility compared to 2019 at that same period. And as you can see that the actual total number of bus trips have, have increased um, since 2019. We also looked at ridership. Uh, and while ridership is uh, down compared to pre-COVID conditions, we do estimate that uh, for Marin Transit, almost 96% of our ridership for the routes that use the transit center is back to pre-COVID uh, levels. And in total, approximately 80% of the pre-COVID ridership at that one facility itself uh, is still riding today. We also know that our ridership, Golden Gate's ridership and smart ridership month over month continues to increase and we expect that trend to continue. Next slide. So as a reminder, for those of you who are not familiar with um, the EIR effort and the preferred site location, this is um, a, a uh, the conceptual rendering of the new facility or the, or the proposed facility that's located generally between Heatherton and Tamil Pius and between 3rd Street and 4th Street. Um, it is what's referred to as the relocate whistle stop alternative. And it is the uh, alternative that gives us that consolidated transit center. As you'll see, SMART is right in between uh, the facility, the SMART station uh, with boarding islands on both the east and to the west of the facility. So um, the next couple slides here kind of give you a flavor of some of the work that we've been doing in coordination with the Bridge District as we start to really dig into the operational details of the facility. On November 1st, we met with their team to really understand what the routing, circulation, and, and platform assignments uh, would look like under a new uh, transit center facility. I should mention that um, we all expect that by the time this facility actually opens, routing and and um, 
pulse timings and schedules will likely change compared to what's out there today. But we really want to use today as kind of that test to see how much flexibility the facility can provide and, and what the routing assumptions would be for uh, some of our common origin destination pairs in and out of that transit center facility. I should also mention that, that discussions with the Bridge District are ongoing. In fact, we have another meeting this afternoon to talk specifically about some of the at-grade crossing issues. Um, so this is, this is an, an ongoing dialogue, but I just thought I'd highlight a couple of the areas that, that we're looking at specifically as it relates to our services. Next slide. So the first area that um, we, we've raised uh, a question around is really the uh, exit of the facility onto 4th Street. Um, unfortunately, I, I apologize, I didn't label these platforms, but the, the red square that, that's shown there, which I'm gonna say is the exit from platform B as in boy. Um, today, if you're familiar with that location directly adjacent to the smart station at 4th Street, that is a signalized intersection. Um, it's, it's part of the Q-cutter signal systems um, that stop traffic um, when not only when the train comes, but also when, when the adjacent signals go to a red phase. Currently, that movement allows vehicles to go left, right, and through. Um, under the proposed uh, under the proposed design that it appears that that movement is limited just to a right out only. Um, you can also see that the crosswalk has been adjusted and the keep clear zones have been adjusted at that location. So part of that uh, circulation um, assumes that all the buses coming out of that platform would have to exit onto 4th Street and would not allow a left turn onto 4th Street. Uh, which does create some challenges for our routes that uh, want to go westbound into uh, San Anselmo, Ross Valley, and for our Route 35 to go northbound up Lincoln. Um, I should also mention that the design of this of the facility right now, the platform that is closest to Heatherton, which I'm going to call the east side of Platform A, assumes that buses getting into that platform also use this driveway. So if you're if you're coming down Third Street, if you're going westbound on Third Street, to get into Platform A, you would actually turn to the west of Platform B, use that drive aisle, come back onto Fourth Street before ultimately getting into the facility. So there's also some questions simply around how bus how those two movements would interact and the amount of traffic that uh, or bus traffic that would be placed on that short block of Fourth Street. So again, conversations are continuing around this specific location, but that is one area that, that we've had some initial questions around. Next slide. The routing assumptions um, that we reviewed in November also assume that buses leaving that east side of Platform A would go over to Heatherton um, to access the southbound 101 or to come back to uh, the canal on 2nd Street. And that block is very short and it's one-way traffic and there's three lanes and there's the railroad crossing. And in fact, the design of Tamil Pius actually shifts that block a little bit further to the east. So we raised um, some questions around the safety of, of that movement for buses exiting that platform. Um, we have since learned that, that um, buses would be able to make a U-turn within the facility around platform A. So those buses that are facing south or to the left of the screen 
would be able to make a U-turn around the block, but then they would come back to 4th Street. So just understanding kind of the, the internal circulation movements and the flexibility uh, that this facility would offer um, is, is important uh, at this point. Next slide. The a couple others that that you know I think aren't necessarily related to the layout of the facility. The first one, um, our route, as I mentioned earlier, our Route 35 is our highest ridership route, is our highest frequency route. It it comes from the canal, it goes to San Rafael, and then ultimately it goes north up Lincoln. That movement um, today um, has to go around the block, basically make three left turns from the transit center on to second, on to Heatherton, on, I'm sorry, on to Irwin, and then back onto 4th Street in order to get to Lincoln. Um, the, the current design um, relies on buses to make a right-hand turn from 3rd Street onto Lincoln, which we know we cannot do today. And we've worked with the city over the past couple of years to assess the feasibility of that turn. Um, and, and to date, we've been unable to really make that movement function without major redesign of the intersection. The current routing relies on that movement to occur. So we do recognize that if, if this design moves forward, we probably would have to work with the city of San Rafael to also solve some routing issues um, downstream of the facility. And then the other one is specific to bus bay assignments. And as I mentioned, schedules and routing will likely change throughout the course of time and by the time this facility is open. But we do hope that the facility allows us to keep buses that are accessing similar geographies. So in this case, all the buses that come from the transit center that go back to the canal, we would like all of those buses to be on the same platform as opposed to splitting up those services. So passengers don't have to decide on a very specific route. They can wait at the platform and get the first bus back to the canal. And currently the assumptions uh, do split up those services. So that's just another um, concern that we've raised that we'd like to be able to keep those services um, on the same platforms um, with the future facility. So those are, um, again, some, some current uh, questions and concerns that, that we've raised and we'll be working with the bridge district, but just wanted to give your board kind of a sense of the level of detail and, and uh, feedback that, that we're uh, evaluating the facility on right now. And with that, I'm gonna go ahead and transition the presentation and turn it over to Mara to give you an update on some of the design work uh, that's um, been done over the last six to nine months. Good morning, and thank you for having me here. My name is Mara Baum. Um, as mentioned, I'm a part of the consultant team, an architect and urban designer with Dialogue. We're working closely with Kimley Horn and the district to advance the preliminary design and the community engagement. Uh, next, please. Um, so this morning, I'll share a little bit of, of what we've been doing recently, um, really focus for the most part on the community engagement activities of the last eight months, and then the preliminary design direction that has come out of that engagement process. I'll also highlight some of the key coordination topics and issues that are ongoing that are some, some of the next steps that we'll be taking. You heard a few of them already this morning, so many of that, much of that won't be uh, particularly surprising, uh, but next please, we'll uh, share also you know, some of the background is, as we just heard, the EIR was completed last year, or excuse me, a little over last year now. 
uh, end of 2022. And then the preliminary design and community engagement process initiated during February of last year. That's when my team joined the project. So there's obviously quite a lot of history that has come before then, but I'll be focusing on this last year or so. Uh, then uh, partway through that process, we also learned that the project would need to go through NEPA clearance. And so that was initiated over the summer and is ongoing. Um, and as a result of the outcomes of the engagement, we're also bringing many of those ideas into the preliminary engineering and preliminary design process that is currently underway. We're, we're partway through that right now uh, to be completed um, part, you know, about mid middle of this year, early, early to middle of this year. Next, please. So this fits into obviously a much longer schedule. Um, the, you know, we'll work through preliminary design now. Um, the district will engage a final design consultant team, we hope later this year, um, then move into construction and completion in several years from now. The caveat here is that the timeline for the NEPA process is somewhat of an unknown, and that would have the potential to push these dates out beyond the numbers that you see here. So we you know, are hopeful that it will move smoothly and we'll be able to uh, keep more or less to this timeline, um, but there are certainly a few, a few areas of unknown. Next, please. So with that, I'll shift over to talk a little bit about the public engagement process that we initiated last February in planning um, and then began with the public in June. There have been kind of two separate parallel paths. The first is with the Community Design Advisory Group, CDAG, um, that is a, a small sector of the public representative of a wide range of, of different um, organizations and stakeholder perspectives. We'll talk a lot more about, uh, uh, you know, about, about each of these in a minute. Um, and then the second parallel path were events open to the public and which each of the events open to the public, they came in pairs. The first one was a public open house um, held in person at the San Rafael Community Center. And then the second was a Facebook Live event hosted in Spanish um, by the Canal Alliance for the Canal Alliance community. Uh, and those were held live, but also available online after the fact for those to watch. And we had you know, dozens of people online live and hundreds, more than a thousand actually, of listeners after the fact. So that really reached quite a diverse and broad audience after the live event. Really very pleased with the level of engagement from the Canal community, uh, both through the Facebook live events as well as, uh, as, well as in person. The public open house material was all bilingual. And so we had, we had engagement from that community in, in both times. So we had the, the public events um, fell twice, first after the, the first two CDAG meetings, and then second at the conclude after the conclusion of the CDAG meetings. Next, please. Um, the community design advisory group really at its core was intended to bring together a diverse group of stakeholders who don't necessarily have the opportunity to sit at the table together to hash through some of the key issues, design concepts, goals, and you know other aspects of the project that we you know we would really want to have a certain level of consensus on moving forward. So these aren't things like bus bay assignments. These are issues more about 
how these function for the riders or what is the experience of a community member who's just passing through, who's getting off the highway and, and driving into downtown San Rafael. And so we, you know, we, we wanted to bring those voices together. We had the Canal Alliance, as, as I you know, had mentioned a minute ago, but we also had the Marin Can County Bicycle Coalition. We had San Rafael Heritage. We had uh, the um, uh, Sustainable San Rafael, a number of different groups, as well as, uh, as well as community members coming together to share their perspectives. And so it really, we really found a lot of value in those individual meetings where everyone was able to sit around the same table and have conversations back and forth with people who they wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to engage directly with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, next, please. The first CDAG meeting was a walk shop. That's a walking workshop. We walked around the site, identified the current transit site, um, current transit center, and the new transit center sites, identified what, what CDAG members didn't like and, and what potential opportunities might be for the, uh, for the, the future transit center. Next. Um, and then at the second meeting, we talked about big moves, the really large design issues that would help to drive the rest of the project. Things like, where do we position the customer service building on the block with the transit center plaza? What's the general look and feel that we're trying to achieve with this place? What are the key amenities that we would want to have to support ridership? Um, next, please. And then the third CDAG meeting, we took those big move concepts and looked much more closely at different potential ways of implementing the design ideas. We focused specifically on how to incorporate select historic elements from the current whistle stop building, originally the Northwestern Pacific Railroad Depot building um, built that's currently at the smart station right now. Um, with the intent of relocating historic elements from that building to be a part of the new customer service building. Um, the CDAG really coalesced around a couple of key ideas. Those included a specific design approach for the customer service building, um, creating a, you know, a different opportunities to create a sense of place, as well as the materiality, the use of wood specifically for the bus shelters and the direction to have a large canopy over the Eastern bus bays, the uh, A and B, as Robert mentioned, that are currently on the, uh, on the site east of the smart tracks. So with those, uh, we took some ideas back and next please, at the fourth meeting, shared some really early ideas around how that might translate into an, an actual conceptual design. Um, again, very conceptual, really preliminary ideas, got feedback from various CDAG members and then evolved those into um, kind of the, the next step of the design. We're taking that forward now. Next, please. Um, the public open houses shared very similar material as the, uh, as, as the CDAG. And we were also quite pleased that for the most part, the large trends of the open houses really mirrored the same types of feedback that we received at the CDAG. Um, so that was that was a very helpful process for us. Um, the first of the two really focused on uh, soliciting feedback and ideas around things like potential amenities and the big moves, whereas the second one uh, provided an update on the CDAG process and the direction of where we would go from here. Um, the atmosphere was largely very positive um, and very, very encouraging. Next. Um, in parallel, 
very similar outcomes from the Canal Alliance Facebook Live events. Um, throughout this process, the Canal Alliance membership on the CDAG and the Canal Alliance team members who we worked with for these Facebook Live events were very engaged, a little quiet at first, took a little bit of pro prompting and support to, to draw them out in these conversations. They're obviously not as accustomed to an engagement process as some of the other CDAG members, um, but over time, they really became very active and vocal contributors and had a, a strong voice in the design process. And the final Facebook Live event was hosted and facilitated by one of the members of the CDAG who joined us from the canal. Um, really appreciative of their support and their engagement here. Uh, next, please. Um, so Robert already gave a little bit of an introduction based on the EIR process on you know, the, kind of the key project features and elements um, this is a plan that shows the, the next step beyond the EIR plan diagram, but the elements that are included here are all largely the same as the EIR. That's the, the definition of scope of the project won't change based on the EIR. Um, but if you're, uh, again, to orient you to the site, for those of you who are less familiar, if you can imagine the very bottom of this drawing is Highway 101, and you're standing on top of 101, looking west toward the ocean, you'll see 3rd Street to the left, 4th Street to the right, um, Heatherton is right below you, and then Tamil Pius is, is farther towards the top. Um, starting at the very top of the image here, you see a pickup drop-off lane, um, then moving eastward, the customer service building and plaza. There is a security kiosk in that plaza, then bus bays along Tamil Pius. Those are C and D. Um, then smart tracks bisecting the site, moving north-south. And then to the east again, a much larger bus canopy covers um, the, the bus bays below. Throughout the site, we're really looking for opportunities to incorporate um, vegetation, both street trees and other plantings, wherever is physically possible based on site constraints in order to really improve the, the quality of the environment in this, in this location. Next, please. One of the really key aspects of this process project as noted by the move whistle stop alternative, the name of the alternative uh, is to incorporate portions of the original 1929 depot structure into the new customer service building. So this is particularly challenging because the original building was changed and added to and taken down and put back so many times over its almost hundred year life that it's no longer at a point of being a historic structure, but it, it is very much beloved by the community. And in particular, those early elements from the 1920s and 30s that the railroad implemented, we're, you know, we're identifying ways of incorporating those. And really it's, you know, fantastic that we're able to take that building, portions of that building and reinstate its transportation function. So going back closer to what it, the you know the purpose it once served. So the original main entry to the depot will now be the main entry to the customer service building, um, and many of the original elements will be brought back to used in a somewhat similar way as they were originally intended. Next, please. I'll show you a couple of, of preliminary renderings. These are renderings that were shown at the public open house in early December. Um, this first one is showing a view from 4th Street looking to the south to through the, the plaza, then to an area, a portion of the customer service building that would serve 
as a cafe or other public retail type function. The intent is for the cafe to be able to take ownership over a portion of that plaza to be able to spill out, have um, create a, a kind of a sense of life and a sense of ownership over that space. Um, and then also to be able to have a, a, a more open area for seating. Next, please. Um, this also shows looking at, um, from fourth, looking south, but towards the building and the bike lane. The, the, this is a two-way bike lane that is helping to connect the north-south greenway, a very important part of the project to support um, pedestrian and cyclist safety. Um, the bike lane is a point of ongoing coordination with the community in the city. And so that, you know, that's one of the aspects of the project that is, is still underway in, in design and in, in coordination. Next, please. And then finally, the larger bus canopy that's east of the smart tracks, really the direction from the CDAG was very much about how do we create a significant, almost monumental structure that welcomes the community to San Rafael, becomes the gateway to the downtown San Rafael district, but also really feels like Marin and the use of wood in, you know, as a part of the structure was really important to the CDAG. And so we're now using this concept as a jumping off point where we'll be able to refine through the preliminary design phase over the next few months. Um, next, please. And so I, I did mention we have quite a few ongo ongoing coordination topics. These are a few of them here. Um, many of these I'm sure will be of, of interest to you all, um, some, some probably more than others, among them included the ownership of Tamil Pius Avenue because this is being transitioned to a bus only um, road that is still to be determined whether that would be um, continue to be owned by the city of San Rafael or if that transitions to Golden Gate Transit. Um, the north-south greenway configuration, the two-way bike lane I mentioned to be coordinated with the city. There's a design review process um, to be underway soon street crossing design, quite a lot of coordination there anticipated, uh, bus bay configuration, obviously with you all, and then cultural resource analysis is a, is a, a key area that has yet to be completed in conjunction with, with both the city and the FTA. Next, please. So we have quite a few immediate next steps um, in, the, you know, in the next year or so. Coordination with you all, we have a presentation to the Marin City Council pending, um, anticipate concluding the preliminary engineering and design phase in the next few months. Um, NEPA clearance is particularly important, timing TBD. We won't be, we the district won't be able to complete right of way acquisition until after the NEPA process is complete. So that will be, uh, that will be pending and then anticipated for the district to procure final design, hopefully later this year. Next, please. That is uh, that that concludes our our presentation. Then, thank you. Thanks uh, to both of you for the presentation. Questions, Director Saget. Thank you. I have a couple of questions. When I'm looking at these renderings, mm -hmm. I don't see the the smart track elevations reflected in there. In, are they? Is that elevation somewhere else? Can you? Kind of yeah, if you that. if you could move back to uh, I think it's three slides, the final of the three renderings. It's in the it's in the background. So like number um, fifteen. But the full the full smart uh the small 
full smart platform and you, know, you can you you can see it here um if you look at the two people on the right side of the rendering there's a gentleman with like a a coral colored shirt and if you look just to the left of him there's a a block a white blocky element that is the, that does represent the elevation of the smart platform all of the ramps and the handrails and the smart uh shelter are not fully incorporated into the rendering, but that does represent the actual height of the platform. Okay. Um, thank you. Um, I guess, so, and this is maybe to, to Robert and, and both, but I, both of you, but I really appreciate the nuances of the circulation. Um, and everybody knows this, but I think it's important to reiterate that the storage capacity in that area on third and fourth street for any cars is I feel like probably one of our most constrained traffic places in the county. And we have so much traffic coming from all of the Ross Valley through there that like any, <laughs> the, just the, to me, the thought that a bus of full length is going to, you know, need to go through three city blocks to get out is like minutes of time. And I would say like through my, my role on smart and elsewhere, that's where we hear so many complaints as people having to sit through lights. And so I appreciate that the ongoing meetings to try to um, perfect and streamline the circulation in a very, very constrained, already built out space, um, but what can be contained within the transit center, I think is of utmost importance for the public. Thank you, Supervisor. If you want, I can jump in a little bit on that. I'm Dennis Mulligan with the Bridge District. It is a very challenging site. We're pleased that the, the city, Marin Transit, SMART, Channel, uh, TAM, and other agencies have all come together on this project. But keeping people moving regardless of their modal choice, whether they're a pedestrian, a bicyclist, a transit user on the, a bus or a train, or someone driving through there because that's what their life necessitates, we want to accommodate them. Uh, Robert got into a lot of detail. It's great he acknowledged that in all likelihood there'll be a couple major service design changes coming from Marin Transit in the coming years like there have been in the last few years. Um, but as we navigate this, we will have to work through those details. Design is an iterative process and we're in the early phases of the allocation space within it. Similar to the existing transit center buses do U-turns within it, that will happen. Uh, one of the issues he highlighted with the three blocks though is an existing condition and it's really outside the scope of this project. Marin Transit has some concerns they've shared with the city of San Rafael, vis-a-vis -vis an intersection at Lincoln. And that is something that uh, I know there's ongoing discussions on um, that are beyond the scope of this project. But clearly the allocation of the real estate within there, we wanna maximize it for the customer. It's, it's all for the public. And uh, we look forward to having lots of conversations with the city and with Marin Transit and SMART as we bring this project to fruition. But the design phase is really in its infancy and I just wanna emphasize that and it is an iterative process. So we appreciate all the feedback. Uh, we'll look at how we can modify things and I'm sure we'll go through many iterations between now and when you're all cutting the ribbon. And I would just say that, you know, the concept that it's outside of the scope of the project, I think with those of us here, our council member next to us, we need to bring it inside the scope of the project and it, you know, in the runway to the final completion and the design that like all of this has to be worked out. It can't, you know, 
And if this, I, I know you're presenting to the city as well, but I just encourage everybody to bring that inside the scope of the project and getting the flow. So it's not sort of a after thought. Certainly getting buses out of traffic, speeding up transit is the best thing we could do to grow transit ridership. Also, the route that's affected is one where folks may not have the option to drive. And so it's really important for those customers that we make their trips as fast as possible for them to have their lives. So I appreciate the feedback. It's been a longstanding challenge, and it's something that we will continue to work on to see if we can fix as soon as possible, because arguably we'd like to have it fixed before this project even breaks ground. I appreciate that. And I appreciate your mention of growing transit, because I think when I sort of look at the pictures of the folks that were involved in the CDAG, I can identify most of them. And I don't anticipate that they're going to be future transit riders. Um, I know that group was bigger, but I think we, you know, it's always important to think of to our future and what it, what do young people want to see? What do young people, what's going to draw people into transit? Um, I feel like from what I saw in the photos, it's the neighborhoods who are going to be impacted by the traffic, but they're going to be, those folks are going to be a harder lift to get onto the buses. It's sort of, how do we, how do we project the future? Uh, thank you. Speeding up trips and more frequent yeah. service. That's really the key. And so I think that's a, a common goal of, you know, I think everyone in this room. Thank you. And I, if I could add with respect to the CDAG membership, the intent was to bring in one third transit riders, one third representatives of key local business and organizations that we recognized as being stakeholders, and then one third broader community members. And it did include, you know, a, a youth representative. It did include a senior representative. You know, it's there is a, a fairly broad range. Um, so I, I do realize you probably recognize quite a few people in those photos, um, but it was a very intentionally structured group to provide those three different sets of perspectives together. Thank you. There we go. Um, well, um, thank you so much for this this presentation. And I sit here in, in my role, of course, on, on the Marin Transit Board, but also as an example of your problem camper, um, and that I was a transit a daily transit rider for many years um, until until COVID hit and everything became um, work from home. So um, I bring a perspective of many years of use, but with a more modern twist in that we don't all go to the same places anymore. So understanding that context, I'm looking at. I'm wondering about your your strategy because you're, you're you're trying to achieve two things here in this process where we are right now. You're you're here giving us an update. We're not making decisions today. Um, and as um, your director has um, uh, explained, this is an iterative process. What is your sort of decision making strategy? How are all of these multitude of you know nuts and bolts on um, uh, street level um, decisions going to get made, and how how is the the balance going to be be struck on on those issues that are on um, very um, you know literally concrete phase, um, and then also in this process there are um, bigger design issues like the the canopy. I love the canopy, um, but maybe other people don't. And how are we going to put it together in a way that achieves these very big 
um, design objectives that are very different from the sort of concrete. Mm -hmm. So, so there's so the question is, what's the process for the the two different types of decisions that need to get made? So, uh, there's it's great you characterize it the way you did because it's spot on. For the minutia, it's really the agency staff, with the, it, which makes it function at its highest level, but it's it's not noticeable to the public. It's really a consensus among all the stakeholder agencies. So that is SMART, Marin Transit, the City of San Rafael, Golden Gate, mm -hmm. and to a lesser extent, a couple others, um, all coming together and having those conversations, understanding each other's positions and reaching a consensus. So I think that's that piece. For the bigger piece, I'll turn to Tamara because she's the designer of the bigger piece. So from a design perspective, we've really heard very strongly from um, the, the bridge district that there is a, a focus on listening to the community and understanding what the community is looking for from a design perspective, which really highlights their commitment to developing the CDAG process and the Open House and Canal Alliance Facebook Live process. And so the, you know, many of the big ideas and big design decisions and directions really at a kind of fundamentally have come from this community engagement process. The question that you're asking is very real. What's next? How do we take that foundation and bring it to a point of something that's actually buildable over time? Now, of course, a piece of that won't happen right away. But during the preliminary design process, we're going through an iterative kind of an, an iterative process right now. We've said iterative several times, but that really is very much the way that we work. We start with a set of ideas, then we get more feedback, then we look, you know, step back, look at, you know, look at some of what we've done, identify how we can make it better and keep going and make it become more and more detailed with every step. So right now what you see is more representative of a look and feel, how it might feel to be at this place and not literally oh, that beam connects to this beam in this way um, type of thing. And so in order to get to that point, we bring in you know, structural engineers, for example, we bring in a much greater you know, set of, kind of technical criteria. So as we feed in more and more of the technical criteria, the design will become much more robust and detailed as we work through these things. So for example, right now, there may be some parts of that canopy that many people love. The consensus that we've heard so far is, is quite favorable for that type of concept. But as architects, we also see parts of that roof and say, oh, pigeons might like that a little too much. And so it's on us now to take the next step of technical criteria and evolve that to be something that is much more functional and something more buildable. And so it's a combination of the community feedback and the technical criteria and ongoing coordination for technical issues with the city and with others that will also feed into some of the design decisions as well. With respect to the Northwestern Pacific um, Railroad Depot building, there are structural criteria. And then there are realities of, well, there are portions, large portions of that original building that don't exist anymore. And so we aren't able to you know, recreate something that no longer exists that we don't have the records for. So there's a whole layer of technical issues that are going to feed into that ongoing process. Um, that, you know, that's what we're going through over the next couple of months. And then that will become even more detailed once the final design process is underway next year. Then if I may add, you know, we're creating a gateway to your city. 
So we will want the city to say, yes, we like this. We're hearing from the community yeah. to shape the design and we want to shape it. We want to work through some of those technical details, but we'll want the city's blessing because we're creating a gateway to your community and we're not going to proceed unless you say, you know, you concur with the, the large roofs and other items, but it's preliminarily, we just want to hear from the community and to go back on the earlier question, the typical design review process is a bunch of retired architects that, you know, are, are generally the more elderly states members of the community. And we didn't want that for this projects to shape the initial design. We want to hear from people that use the facility and future users of the facility. So we worked with the city to craft a, a, a group um, that we thought would provide that input. But ultimately, we're going to want to hear from the city as it pertains to the larger design elements. What is your feedback? Because, you know, this is your community that will be helping to define uh, as this project moves forward. Well, and just to follow up, we're very committed to excellent design. And I'm a little bit concerned that we might you might be going down too much of a path of design by committee, which is mm -hmm. often yeah. not excellent. So I'd rather have an architect with a with a vision than a, a, a consensus. So yeah. keep all of those balls in the air. Yeah, we we uh, definitely know that there is a balancing act with that. And the CDAG process has concluded. So the, the this notion of design by committee from the perspective of the, of the CDAG, that is not anticipated to, you know, to, to continue. There's no voting on, you know, it's not a democratic process in which, you know, the, the design direction with the most votes wins. So that that type of uh, that we we've definitely heard some of those concerns. That's not anticipated to be a a, a challenge moving forward. Mm -hmm. Director Rice. Yeah, thank you. Um, really appreciate the uh, update and the and the revisit. Um, I wanted to kind of just go back to the um, questions that and concerns that Robert was raising around circulation and right turns, left turns. And I what I wanted to ask about was the the capacity of the modeling to test different scenarios in terms of bus movement interlayered over with, you know, the the um all the other things that are going on in that area, auto, train, lights, et cetera. How how sophisticated is the modeling and how much can it really uh, tell us about what's going to happen circulation-wise in that area with different con configurations um, that are the different configurations that are that are possible there. So I'll jump in a little bit. Our modeler is not with us today. Uh, we can have them come to a future meeting if that's a desire. But when Smart bisected the transit center um, with the construction to Larkspur, which is vital for the North Bay. It's a fabulous project. We were faced with having to redesign the existing facility to put it in a temporary state while we go through this process. And what we did is we have some real estate. We went to one of our yards midday when we weren't intensively used. We laid out different configurations on the pavement, surveyed them, uh, marked them, and we drove things to see, you know, how does it physically work? Because you can have a, a, a model, um, but models can sometimes lead you slightly astray. Um, but there's been a, a tremendous amount of technical analysis of the intersections. Um, our team has worked very closely with the city and their experts and their traffic engineers on this. Um, but like in terms of buses moving around on the site or pulling out, those are things that you can actually find a piece of real estate, put it on the ground, and you can confirm that because, uh, you know, traffic engineering hubris can get us in a lot of trouble. <laughs> 
There's a bumper sticker that says that, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, and I guess then I appreciate, I appreciate that. I do, I mean, it is such a highly congested area. I mean, there's just, it's not even, there's just so much going on. And um, and I think it's it's gonna be important to the degree that we can get it right, get it right. Though, as has been noted, you know, there are gonna be changes in routes and numbers of buses in and out over the years. But um, I do think that, it's um, it's right now a real problem area. It can take regularly six, seven minutes to get from Lincoln onto Irwin um, in a car, but buses are stuck in that as well. Everybody gets stuck when it's not working. And I guess my um, other point is to the various stakeholders in the scope of the project. While I understand the scope of the project for, for the bridge district is, is finite, it had, I mean, this stuff has to be integrated with, um, there's a larger scope and it's so dependent on the cooperation and collaboration of the partners. And, and I would extend it not just to smart Marin transit, Golden Gate district, um, and the city, but also even Caltrans, because we see what happens with the freeway when things are backing up. And I also am thinking that to the degree the city has to make um, additional improvements or changes that will frankly make it all flow better for all the users. There's a role for partners to play in helping access funding, et cetera. And I just, I think that the community at large expects these agencies to be working together and it's, um, and it, it's a big deal. Um, so it'd be nice to get it right. Anyway, I um, really appreciate the presentation and especially the um, emphasis on in, on bringing in those folks who are actually using the transit center the most uh, and in terms of those design features um, for waiting, for sitting, for, for what have you. I think that's really, really important. How does this work? So thank you. Thanks. Uh, Fred? Yeah, thanks for the presentation. A couple of questions. With all the potential movement of buses, U-turns and all that, how are you factoring in riders and the movement of riders between bays, between smart into the service center? How do you factor that in, couple that with potential traffic also? The beauty of the alternative that's been environmentally cleared is that for people to go from one bus to another bus or from a bus to a train, they will no longer have to cross a public road. And so right now uh, on Third Street, there have been a history of fatalities. And so this will... Uh, remove that challenge. Within the site, there are opportunities to have people move safely around. Obviously, the smart train, because it's a controlled access, creates some challenges, um, but it'll be light years better than what we have today. And the team is uh, very talented and very focused on understanding how the customers move. And that does get into the bay assignments that Robert talked about, because you want to, you know, bring people close together so someone doesn't have to walk a block to transfer to the bus, particularly for those more common transfers. And so the uh, assignment of the bays will be an ongoing effort that will change. It'll be a living thing after the transit center opens because every couple of years there's some significant changes. And when those occur, that'll all have to be revisited. The key is that the facility provides the flexibility to accommodate those needs. And so, you know, under, making sure everyone understands how buses can turn around within the site, how they can leave the site, and then, you know, arguably fixing things that maybe were beyond what was in the EIR uh, provides a lot of potential benefits to the broader community and to all of us. Okay, thanks. And then on the canopy, I think you mentioned um, functionality. Mm -hmm. Is it functionality that would extend to weather elements? In other words, if it's raining, 
are riders somewhat protected or would they be protected? Yeah, we we have been undertaking a level of analysis related to sun, wind, and rain, um, acknowledging that the orientation of uh, the, the kind of the direction that the bus bays move in in that north-south axis does make it unfortunately particularly challenging for both sun and rain to protect in all directions at all times. One of the reasons that we've moved in the direction of having a larger canopy is really very much to help support that protection. Um, we're also faced with a challenge of needing to be high enough above the buses to be able to clear the you know the roof of the buses by a certain you know by a certain amount. That that also by leveling that up, we need to also make sure we're able to continue to prevent the sun and the rain from coming in at the sides because the, high, the higher that is, the more challenging it can be. Um, it's definitely an area of study for us. Uh, given the orientation, will it be perfect? Probably not. We'd have to, we did actually do the analysis. We'd have to cover like <laughs> practically three city blocks to be able to protect from the afternoon sun in all locations. So there are definitely some checks and balances. This is part of the technical uh, feedback, you know, tech, in, integrating some of the technical analysis and, and technical criteria uh, into the iterative process. It has very much been a focus of ours, and we're trying to as we're trying to improve those conditions as the design moves forward. Okay, and then would there be any consideration out of curiosity put solar panels or anything like that to make it yeah. more um, friendly in that sense? A absolutely. So we've. Uh, we've looked at potential opportunities both for the customer service building as well as for uh, the smaller bus shelters on Tamil Pius and the uh, the larger canopy at, um, east of Smart. That is a perfect example of a level of detail that isn't necessarily going to come yet, that conceptually we've identified places that would be very appropriate from you know a, a position and an orientation perspective. But that that technical that level of technical detail wouldn't be integrated into the project at this time. We we would we would you know we'd always be required to have PV ready to be solar ready. Um, the question of whether or not the solar would be integrated into the project is likely to to come at a a later date. Okay, thanks. And then one last question. I'm getting ahead of it because I know we're just in the design phase now. What happens when it goes to construction? Does the whole site get shut down? And then what's the alternative? Yeah. How do you move buses in and out? Because um, I know yeah. there's going to be a painful period of about a year plus or minus traffic and all that. It's a great question. The good news is since it's not a reconfiguration of the existing site, it's across the street, we'll be able to do construction while we use the existing site and it's you know suboptimal configuration. So the impacts uh, to transit during construction will be more modest because we'll be able to build a new one, then we'll decommission the old one, and then we'll work with the city with respect to how that old one uh, could be perhaps uh, developed uh, consistent with city zoning. And right. we, we would also look for construction phasing to have as absolutely limited impact to 3rd, 4th, and Heatherton as possible. Um, a portion of, of Tamil Pius is going to be moved west, so that will obviously need to be shut down for a period of time. But that is today one of the least used stretches of road in that whole portion of the site plan. So there's very mu much more limited level of impact to the site, and you know, at, we 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 do know that the existing, since the existing transit center will be able to maintain full operation until the new one is fully in place, that 
you know, that won't have a big impact. But we've all been driving through neighborhoods where there's construction and the lane is shut down here and there. Uh, we we would like to be able to limit that as much as possible. And, and given the position of most of the construction work, that's actually somewhat realistic that we shouldn't have to take over huge portions of existing roadways for construction laydown areas and, and whatnot. Great, thanks. I appreciate all the work that's been, been done on this and uh, a lot of the thought that's going into looking forward on potentially what could happen with traffic impact, um, movement of bays. There's a lot of moving parts um, so I appreciate all the work you guys are doing on it. Thanks. Director Lugan. Uh, thank you so much for the update. Really excited to see the progress uh, on this project. I'm curious, uh, what's what's the financial picture for this project looking like from the money that was set aside in the regional measure to, you know, until you go out to bid, you don't really know. But can you maybe just give me a quick quick overview? Um, sure. Uh, the Bridge District uh, has $30 million that's in regional measure three with the state Supreme Court ruling last year. That money will be available uh, we also have the value of the existing real estate that we've committed in agreement with multiple parties that we will use to fund this. We also know that we'll need a toll match. We are applying for a federal grant uh, as part of the RAISE program because we have about a $20 million shortfall based on the current estimates for the entire project for the design, the right-of-way acquisition and construction. And so we're working to procure that. And that's why we're going through a NEPA environmental clearance is so that we'll be eligible for federal funds. Gotcha. And then the, the, the current site, as you mentioned, will be, uh, eventually be sold and the proceeds will be used to help fund the Correct. project. And we'll play banker for that transaction. Gotcha. <laughs> um, and then just a couple of things on the design elements. I, I, I really like the canopy, but I'm glad that you mentioned the pigeons and that's all being looked at because what could be a beautiful canopy could also be a great uh, habitat uh, and then turns into netting and all this other stuff. So I appreciate that. Um, on the uh, the, the surface, the, the the ground surface or the pavement surface, what, what's being looked at at that to maybe give it a little more of a, a plaza feel than just pavement? Um, what, what's being talked about in that regard? Uh, this is a great example of where we have really valued the CDAG contributions to some of the design ideas. There is a very strong interest in, in a warmer feel for the materials, both on the ground as well as in the furniture. And so we were looking at, at different types of brick with a, a, a warmth for the plaza specifically, um, and then integrating that in a slightly different, but you know, kind of sim similar but not identical way for sidewalks. Um, we haven't looked extensively at the surface material of Tamil Pius, uh, which will be relocated and so therefore need to be uh, you know, re resurfaced in, in some context. Uh, because that would need to be coordinated with the city. But anything in that's directly and very immediately inside the scope of the project, we're looking closely at specific material types that help to create that sense of warmth um, that aligns with the, the wood as well. Right. I, I think that keep, keep on that track. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Director Rodoni. Just thank you for the presentation. Really appreciated. Um, you know, I've been involved in this project both at the Bridge District and here, and I've had the pleasure of attending both the, the town meetings, the community meetings, and um, also seeing some of the um, uh, people from the canal at those meetings and giving more input. So I really appreciate all that, and uh, looking forward to the next step. You know, I think there's a lot of great questions my colleagues raised. I've been taking notes here that some are new questions, which is good. And uh, I guess my only question is, looking out that this won't be built for a few years, what point or have you already looked at um, 
the possibility of needing some charging or electric facilities and or hydrogen facilities at some point at this location. So if it's hydrogen, it won't be at this location. Um, your general manager is very creative at ideas for potential, you know, sites uh, for joint infrastructure. Um, but, you know, it's preliminary conversations. Um, clearly, um, for electric buses, it gets into the design. Both agencies have adopted a zero emission bus plan. Um, you know, one of the things as things roll out is will any agency need midday charging? And if they do need midday charging to top off, this would be the ideal location. So um, it's all very preliminary at this juncture, but we're cognizant that um, if the ultimate solution is a battery electric as opposed to hydrogen, uh, there may be opportunities to have some infrastructure here. The reality is we don't want to create what currently exists at the Walnut Creek BART station where the uh, county connection bus pulls in and can charge, but the Soul Trans bus can't. So it's really important that we have standardization in all the North Bay operators with respect to our infrastructure. And so as uh, Nancy mentioned in her report, uh, the North Bay operators are all getting together now. And one of the items on our agenda is just this. You know, we don't want to have overhead zap charging for one agency and in-ground zap charging for another agency. And we've encouraged MTC as part of regional efforts, and they have a consultant on board now uh, to look at this regionally. When there was a horrific shooting down in VTA, uh, they did a call for uh, emergency aid, and we sent buses down with our operators to provide service because they could not. Um, but if we all had different infrastructure or fueling, it would be quite problematic. Similarly, when there's North Bay fires, um, you know, we had to evacuate one of our yards. Uh, we use our buses along with Sonoma County Transit buses to evacuate people from a assisted living facility. So having interoperability is vital. And so, you know, clearly uh, this site is for midday topping off uh, an ideal location since a lot of buses come here. And so it is something that we're cognizant of. Director Martin Peters, you're good. Uh, I'll, I'll agree all the good questions have been asked. Uh, there's just three ideas that resonated with me. One is uh, the sense of place as it relates to community vitality. Um, the second is uh, the scope of the project, um, which sort of relates to my third point is, and I'll go back to what Director Sackett said. Um, we need to sort of figure out who's using it today and who will use it in the future. And they, you know, they're not really concerned, understandably, as consumers about turf war. So I would encourage you to continue to, to focus on you know, who's going to be using it. Um, thanks to our presenters. And Dennis, thanks for making a special appearance. And with that, we'll wrap it up. And we'll move now on to our final item. Oh, wait, sorry. Public comment. Yes. Um, Anthony Nicor, please unmute. Good morning, folks. Um, thank you, Robert. Thank you, Amara, for the excellent presentation for the Cyberfield Transit Center uh, Redevelopment Project. My primary concern would be I understand that the NEPA process is still ongoing, but um, I hope that you will address the issue of adaptive reuse for the transit center, especially when you have several businesses that will be affected by the project, including a bank, a restaurant, and um, several other commercial um, attractions like a bar. Hopefully in the um, redevelopment process, you'll be able to put in all of those um, projects in terms of um, you know, we want to put in, you know, like um, commercial spaces, like, you know, putting the bar into the transit center, for example, or putting in a restaurant or 
even in like um, if possible mixed use development, like put housing at the transit center, you know, to address the issue with, um, you know, like um, um, housing developments. So hopefully um, in the design process, you'll be able to incorporate those additional ideas, especially when we are still in a housing, you know, like um, crisis, you know, in quotation marks, but then hopefully um, all the affected businesses within the transit center will be addressed so that we can put them into the new transit center and make it even more welcoming to visitors and to regular riders. Thank you. There are no additional raised hands on Zoom. Someone in the chamber, please come forward. Welcome. Hello, uh, my name is uh, Leo Bizarre. I actually have a few uh, questions with regards to this project. I've actually, I think one of the major questions I have is who is this transit Because as far as I can see, this there's been a lot of discussion with the transit with how traffic moves in town, but. When walking, when uh, people talk about a sense of place, what, who, are they asking you for? Cars don't care about, but people do. The issue with this project so far is that how do are people actually getting inside? How are they getting in and out? And it's not parties that are going to be. Why would they? They have a call. The major issue is how pedestrians and us get in and out and I don't know if anyone actually has walked around the transit but how does it feel so comfortable fighting want to be there it's not just about the transit center be the transit place also have to think about all the streets around that for now are just nothing they don't invite anyone right? no one goes there because they want to be there people who use the transition those who need to use it have no other choice. The major demographic where you might want to increase ridership for people ought to want transit system. Thank you. Thank you very much for your comments. Any additional public comment in the room? All right, seeing none, now we will consider this wrapped up. Thanks again to the presenters and to my directors for their comments. We'll move on to our final item of the day, the fair collection study update. And this again is a discussion item. It is. And um, Kathleen Sullivan, our director of planning, will be presenting this item. And it is one of a few that you've heard. And we're getting near uh, the final one, which will be happening at your next meeting. So Kathleen, if you want to take it away. Yeah. Um, good morning and happy new year, um, President Colbert and members of the board. Um, here for your monthly update on the fair study. Um, we are coming near the end. Um, I think we'll be bringing, uh, our plan is to bring final recommendations um, next month. So uh, this is our, your second to last update on the FAIR study. Um, next slide. As you are aware, we did some outreach and conducted a survey in the fall. Um, and I'll be sharing some uh, summary findings from that effort. We I'll also am gonna be sharing formally the technology recommendations for the study and the phasing of those recommendations. Um, I sort of hinted at the recommendations last month, but I'll actually present sort of the formal recommendation in draft form this month. Um, we anticipate, we're still working on fair policy recommendations and anticipate bringing those next month 
alongside the actual approval of the final recommendations for the study. Next slide. So uh, outreach was conducted September and October of, of last year. Um, next slide. And the goals of the outreach effort were beyond just collecting surveys. Um, we did seek to engage a diverse cross-section of the community, um, but really had some specific strategies to engage the subset of riders who tend to be, the subset of the community and specifically our riders who tend to be harder to reach. So those who prefer to use cash, um, low income and minority um, riders and residents or members of the community. Um, we were seeking to just inform people that this, this study is ongoing and there may be changes coming to the fare system, both for Clipper and for the fare boxes, um, and answered sort of general questions people had about that. Um, the goal of the survey and, and some of those conversations was to understand, understand general rider payment preferences um, as well and community payment preferences for all sorts of items and then for transit specifically. Next slide. Um, so the survey was available, getting specifically to the survey, it was available both electronically and in paper. We did some in-person outreach um, and we promoted it through a range of avenues. Um, posters, posted at transit stops and stations, A-frames, um, postcards that we handed out. Um, we did ad rails on our buses and promoted via a, a variety of electronic media as well, our, our um, website our e-blast, we have a special, um, we had social media posts about it. We also distributed it to a variety of community partners and and all of your board. Um, and we had quite a bit of promotion actually through our partner organizations and individuals. So thank you for those of you who helped uh, boost our promotion of the survey. Um, we also did in-person uh, events and collection of surveys at the transit center and various other stops and community events. And we did provide all materials in four, our four um, Title VI languages. Next slide. So just in terms of the numbers, um, we did about 10 in-person outreach shifts. Uh, we did collect 721 survey respondents, which we were pretty happy with. Um, There's a pretty fair uh, response rate for the survey compared to past efforts that we've made. The majority were collected in English, um, but we did get a fair subset in Spanish. About 15% of surveys were collected in Spanish language. Um, with much smaller numbers in Vietnamese and Chinese. Um, race is not shown here, or sort of the demographics of the survey respondents is not shown here, but we did, um, we got the demographics of the survey respondents were basically midway between our demographics and Marin County demographics. So our targeting worked fairly well. Um, we didn't get an exact replica of our demographics of our riders, but it was also, you know, much closer to our ridership demographics than if you looked at the county as a whole. So we were we were happy with that, and we can continue. We had some good lessons learned on targeting and and what types of activities um, and outreach got at the types of demographics that we want to get at. So those minority, low income, and um, cash users. Um, let's see. Um, we did also in analyzing the, the responses, we looked at responses as a whole, but also at those specific demographics. So knowing that the survey responses as a whole was not a perfect replica of our ridership, we did do some sub, you know, analysis of a subset of the responses to really look at focus in on what those particular respondents um, answered. Next slide. So just in terms of the key takeaways, um, summary of what we learned. 
The first thing we asked was, how do people pay for everyday items like coffee or food items? Um, and if they're choosing to pay with cash, why are they choosing to pay with cash? So this first bullet is sort of looking at the responses on that question. In general, low-income and minority riders tended to rely on cash more than others, which we would have expected. Um, and the main reason is just that cash is simple and easy. Uh, secondarily, the second reason that came out in the responses was um, it helps with budgeting. The second thing we asked was what payment methods people have access to. So not just what they choose to use, but what do they have access to regardless of what they're actually choosing to use. Um, and across the board, we saw very high levels of access to non-cash payment methods. So we asked about credit card, debit card, prepaid debit card, smartphone app payment um, options, and not only respondents as a whole, but all of those subsets had actually quite high access to other, indicated they had high access to other payment methods, um, which we were happy to learn. It was actually higher than we anticipated. Um, and it does provide some indication that maybe some of the open loop technologies available through Clipper 2 might be possibilities for these riders once some other payment methods are available to be uh, directly pay for transit fares. Um, and finally, the last section of our questions was about Clipper. Um, and if uh, riders are using Clipper card today, and if not, why? Um, more low-income and minority riders appear to have access to a Clipper card than we anticipated, um, but they are not using it on Marin Transit. We still have about 10% of our riders that are using Clipper. Um, so that could be to some of the barriers, the known barriers to Clipper use, like your value doesn't load immediately. Our past products are not available on Clipper. We did encounter some people who are using Clipper on other systems like Golden Gate and don't use it on our buses. Um, that's partially potentially due to some of those Clipper barriers, but also because it's really easy to put a dollar into the machine. Um, and so the overall takeaway is that some of the biggest challenge of transitioning people away from cash is not necessarily that they don't have access to some other option, but that just cash is super easy. It's simple. They understand it. They understand how much they're paying and they have a really strong habit of using cash. So Unfortunately, those are slightly harder barriers to overcome than just fixing the technology, um, but it's good to know. Um, and it did reinforce some things that we already su suspected. Um, we did also learn useful information to inform future marketing and outreach campaigns. Um, again, also sort of reemphasizing things we know, but in-person bilingual outreach is really critical to reach certain populations. Um, but we did have a fair showing of people who are responding to the, to the online survey, um, even amongst Spanish-speaking populations or, um, you know, low-income and minority populations. Um, so that was sort of the, the gist of the survey outcomes. Next slide. Moving on to the draft technology recommendation. Um, as presented last month, we evaluated three different technology alternatives that could meet Marin Transit's needs. We've completed our evaluation and our vendor engagement. Um, so talking to some of the folks who actually provide these technologies and we are recommending, next slide. We are recommending for the fare box, the drop fare box, um, which is what we discussed last month. Um, and the, so that would be to for cash collection and repl to replace our GFI GenFare fare boxes, which are the validating fare boxes for ridership counts. We're recommending uh, collecting those via automated passenger counters. And for driver tally, which so rider, what we call rider segment, which is youth, senior, you know, whether someone brings a wheelchair on board or a bicycle, 
we are recommending driver tally, which is actually what's happening today. Drivers are tallying on the GFI fare box. Um, we're recommending that they continue to tally, but on a separate mechanism, which is the um, a driver tally or a manual, or a data unit that's included in our CAD AVL system. So that's actually not a new piece of technology. It's just switching drivers from collecting that information on one machine to collecting it on another machine that's already on the bus. So there will be a retraining involved, but it's not a new uh, cost to run transit. Um, and just for reference, uh, we did collect costs for all the different three options and the highest was the validating fare box as we expected. So for the, just for that top row, um, replacing GFI is somewhere in the 1.5 to $2 million range. So, um, you know, cost was a big driver of, since we do have this very sophisticated, actually, you can go to the next slide. Um, why we opted for drop fare box. Um, I'm not gonna belabor this. I think a lot, some of these points we said last month, but we are going to have this very sophisticated clipper system that the whole region has really invested in um, on board the bus already. So having another very expensive piece of equipment on board um, to the tune of 1.5 to $2 million just didn't make sense. And we think this drop box is, they're simple, they have no moving parts, um, long life, low cost, less prone to failure, all of that that comes with this more simple piece of machinery. Um, this just made a lot of sense since we'll have Clipper to continue to support our cash paying riders. Uh, next slide. So in terms of the ridership counting piece, this was a um, this was another key piece of the study. We currently get our ridership counts from our fare boxes. So um, we do have automated passenger counters on a subset of our buses today. We haven't really invested the effort in those because it hasn't been our primary source of ridership data. Um, so we're not getting, getting as good of data as we could out of those um, machines. And we are uh, we don't have them on all of our buses. So um, this is really the direction, though, that the industry is going. A lot of the peers um, and operator interviews that we did are using APCs for ridership counting. They are, um, when invested in and sort of focused on as your primary mechanism, the most accurate way to get ridership counts. Um, they also give us boardings and alightings by stop. So that's not data we have today. We get by route, but we don't have reli really reliable data for all of our routes by stop. And we also get boardings and alighting. So you not only know when where someone got on, where someone got off. So it's potentially a much more robust set of information for planning purposes, for knowing what our riders are doing today. Um, we can kind of make assumptions and use the subset of data we have to kind of try and understand what riders are doing, but this will give us a much higher level of confidence in that data. Um, we can get NTD. Um, we can use this for our national transit database reporting. It, we have to go through sort of a validation process with them, but this can be used and what is what a, a lot of agencies are using for NTD reporting. Um, and uh, the other piece that it pro pro can provide is load and crowding information. If you know all the boardings and the lightings, it can provide that real-time um, load data which can be for our purposes, but also can uh, eventually be used for externally. We can actually tell riders what buses are crowded and what buses aren't. Um, that's a couple steps down the line in the, you know, getting them validated, but um, that's also just a great, a great thing that we could have if we, if we transition to really investing in our APC system. Next slide. Um, we are looking at phasing the implementation of these technologies. We don't have to do all of this this year. Um, 
as we have reported in the past, our GFI fare boxes are re reaching the end of our useful life. We have a little bit more runway with those. Um, they should be good through 2025. So our first step is to um, starting this, we've already actually started assessing our current automated passenger counters. Um, I didn't mention this, but I showed costs on that slide at the beginning of the recommendations. You may have noticed there's a very big range of costs for the automated passenger counters. That's because we do have existing equipment. So we need to go through an assessment process and figure out some of those um, counters are older than others. Um, are there some of them that are still good? And we just need to update kind of the um, software that's that's digesting the data, or are there some adjustments in the connectivity we can make? So we're assessing all our current APCs right now. If a lot of those are still good, we'll be closer to that lower end of the range because we'll be able to use existing equipment. Um, and then the higher end is if we had to completely replace all of the automated passenger counters. So we're hoping we are somewhere towards the lower or mid middle of that range that some of our existing automated passenger counters we will be able to continue to use. Um, so that current assessment is happening right now. We will at some point, um, likely this year, have to come with um, some new, a new software or hardware procurement, either to increase the utility of our existing APCs or uh, add APCs to additional buses, replace some of the older APCs. All that will come to you with more information before we'll, we have any sort of procurement on that front. Um, the second step is the rider segment counting. We can effectively do that anytime, um, but we're thinking sometime this year we'll transition the drivers from counting on one machine to counting on another machine. That uh, transition can be independent of, of that um, actually getting rid of the GFI fare box. It obviously has to happen before we get rid of the GFI fare box, but it doesn't necessarily happen, have to happen at the same time. So we could transition that rider segment counting before we get rid of the GFI fare box. Um, and then the third would actually be to remove the GFI fare box and transition to the drop fare box. We anticipate that we would probably procure drop fare boxes sometime in 2025. Um, and part of that is to get ourselves a little bit of a overlap between Clipper. So we'll also be getting Clipper this year, um, exact timing TBD, um, but we're, we're, we're in very close engagement with MTC on that Clipper rollout. But likely by the end of this year, um, hopefully by the fall, we'll have Clipper. If we don't transition the GFI fare boxes until maybe a year later, we'll have a whole year of overlap between essentially some of our current fare products and some Clipper products where we can transition riders um, gradually, basically, to the new Clipper system, see what kind of, do a big push on Clipper, see what kind of uptake we have. Um, and it will just help inform some of the fare policy choices we have to make. For example, currently, if a cash rider wants a transfer, our GFI fare box prints that transfer for them. So if we get rid of GFI, we have to either not offer cash transfers, which seems would be problematic today because a lot of people are depending on that, or um, come up with some other way to print a cash transfer for those folks. So if we have a, a year of overlap, we can see how we can get people all into Clipper. And if we still have a fair share of people needing those cash transfers, then we can figure out what the what the substitute cash transfer mechanism is. And if we get a lot of people onto Clipper, maybe it won't be needed. Um, so that that overlap really gives us a little bit of uh, flexibility to figure out how that Clipper transition goes. Next slide. So that's all I have today. Happy to answer any questions. Thank you for the report. Director, questions? Dr. Martin Peters. Uh, great report, Kathleen. How does how do these counters, automated passenger counters, work? Are they in the step? 
uh, or something or like, where are they? Just yeah. curious. Yeah. So there's a, a couple different technologies. We did do a bunch of vendor interviews and I at least learned a lot, <laughs> a lot more about how APCs work. So there's a couple, um, they're usually mounted at the top actually. And some are just a sensor that's basically like a, a sheet. And so they detect things coming through that, you know, that sheet detection and back out again. Some are a little bit more sophisticated and they actually um, lock on to an individual and can track them. So if one part, they're a little bit more accurate because they track someone, if they step on and then stop off the bus or step on and then bring their child on board with them, they're a little bit more accurate because they can actually track an individual at a time, not by identity or anything, just as like a, a, an, a human body. Um, they can also track uh, devices pretty well coming on and off. So, and then there's a whole set of software on the back end. So that gives you just raw data of a sensor. There's basically a sensor. Um, and then on the back end, that data all goes in and there's um, pretty sophisticated software processing that happens where then you get a more digestible set of, you know, this is the number of individuals, this is the number of bicycles, this is the number of wheelchairs. Um, so there's kind of a data cleaning piece that some of those vendors also offer. Some of that data cleaning we're doing today, which is why sometimes our APCs aren't as reliable as um, they could be if we had some of this additional software to help us. Um, there's also some, some diagnostics they offer to see how our APCs are, are operating today. And then they some of the vendors can actually help us do the whole NTD certification process. Um, so, you know, it takes some steps through through FTA to actually get certified for that, to use that data source. So does that answer your question? Yeah. Any additional director questions? All right. Thank you very much for the report. And with that, oh, yeah, I'm going to be deposed. Uh, <laughs> public comment, Kate, any in the chamber? None, any online? I'll give everyone a moment to raise their hands on Zoom. There are no raised hands on Zoom. Oh, I'm Anthony Nicor, please unmute. Welcome. Anthony, hello please again. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Hello again. Um, well, thank you for the report, Kathleen. I just sent you an email, by the way, uh, regarding the um, your idea for the drop fare box. Sure, it may be convenient for cash customers to just drop in their money, but the question becomes. Since the current system, GFI Odyssey, has the ability to produce um, electronic transfers, or should we say paper transfers, you know, that can be, you know, like uh, that can be used with a Golden Gate Transit, would that mean um, you'll be handing out paper transfers again that use, um, you know, like of those some of those punch cards that will allow, you know, like um, passengers to travel within Marin County and um, Golden Gate will cross honor them? instead of, you know, like uh, having a unified fare system wherein both agencies still use the GFI, but then in the process, there have been instances of, um, a, um, you know, like a fare box is having many issues with the GFI. That's why I am curious as to how this will proceed in terms of, you know, like a um, transfer, uh, you know, like a cross, uh, um, cross um, uh, transit agency, um, you know, like uh, honoring the transfers between Marine Transit and Golden Gate Transit and also with other agencies. And, and I understand that this will be a far easier solution for Marine Transit to operate with drop fare boxes. But at the same time, I'm a bit concerned with how this will be implemented, especially when the larger agencies already use um, GFI 
pretty much as they're of I mean, like a fair box system. Thank you. All right. There are no additional raised hands on Zoom. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. And with that, I'll take one final look at my directors. Not seeing any final comments or questions. We are adjourned. Thank you, Nancy and your team.